Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Welcome to episode 70 of Life Beyond the Numbers and a Happy New Year to you. This episode is going out in early January 2022. So a warm welcome to you wherever in the world you might be listening. And in fact, when I look back at 2021, it was incredible to see that people listened in over 60 countries. So again, a warm welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope you continue to do so. And if there are any suggestions you have for guests you might like to hear from or topics you might like covered, feel free to get in touch. Let me know. You can write to me on susan at beyond-thenumbers.com or reach out to me on social media. I'd love to hear from you. And last year, there were 46 episodes. And my focus went to the top 10 when I was looking back. What were the most downloaded during the year? And then that made me think about, well, what were the least downloaded during the year? And so I had a look through the lower 10. And from that, I picked some excerpts and put them together to create an episode, which I think is, is mainly about making connections, looking at patterns. And we start off with episode 61 with Lisa Lloyd talking about the difference between thinking and imagination. And from there, we go to Alison Jones in episode 58. And Alison talks about what thinking looks like. Then back to Lisa to talk a little bit about pattern recognition. And then a great way to illustrate pattern recognition was from episode 39 with Glyn Bailey. And as Glyn talks about heart quite a lot, I then went to episode 38 with Gavin Andrews and we talk about heart math. And then on to Lisa Milner who talks about body, breath, feelings. And finally, we close out with a little bit from Lisa Lloyd on how our brain works. And so, yes, there were connections, patterns, threads I pulled on to put this compilation together. I hope you enjoy it. And of course, if you want to hear more from any of those guests, listen to the full episode. I'll leave some details in the show notes about each of those episodes. And welcome to 2022, everybody. 
what's the difference between imagination and thinking? Well, our imagination is very much emotionally driven. So, for example, you, you know that I've broken my ankle. <laughs> and when I was on the mountainside and it's clear I wasn't going to get off the mountain on my own, my children were with me and my husband. And a lot of people said afterwards they must have been really, really scared because it wasn't an ideal situation. I said, actually, they were delighted by the whole situation because of the moment, helicopters coming and it was just so exciting for them. But it was very much an emotional response, what was happening in that moment. And it was just raw. It was there. And obviously it's guided my response and my husband's response in terms of shaping them. But in terms of how we think about stuff, thinking requires our prefrontal cortex. It requires that clever bit of our brain, which only works well when our emotional arousal is low. So if you think about a bucket and it's filling up with emotional arousal, our capacity to think clearly goes out the window. We just don't have the capacity for it. And that's sensible if you think about emotional arousal, it's all about fight, flight, freeze. It's all about action. You don't want your brain to be thinking about the pros and cons of different ways of escaping from danger. You just want to do something. So I think when we're looking at the ability to think, we need low emotional arousal. We need to be able to see different options. I say to people, think about, you know, what's the evidence for something rather than what's going on in your imagination. And you just need to look and have a much broader perspective. Whereas our imagination can be really helpful to help inform thinking, or it can be a real barrier to that thinking, depending on the state of our emotional arousal. I hear this all the time. People saying to me, we don't have time to think about that, or we have no headspace at the moment to even think about thinking about that. <laughs> and that seems to be, you know, what people say in workplaces. And I suppose, Alison, what does thinking look like for you? And that's the problem, isn't it? So often thinking looks like doing absolutely nothing productive. It looks like staring out of the window. It looks like doodling. It looks like going for a walk. Uh, this is invisible work. And where you have management by walking around, it isn't really encouraged. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Thinking is, I think, something that most of us really struggle to fit into our day. And it feels artificial, I think, as well. So if, if we think, oh, I'm, what I'm going to do now is spend 15 minutes thinking. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's like mindfulness. I'd very quickly be jotting down a shopping list or thinking, oh, I really should go, you know, to the dishwasher or, you know, because there's a billion little distractions that immediately come in. So the quality, the time, the, the habit of mind of just thinking deeply about stuff, I think is, it's pretty hard to do spontaneously. Yeah. And... You're right. We're we're constantly thinking. I mean, there's you know thoughts going off right now. <laughs> we're telling ourselves stories all the time. Yeah, we're remembering fragments of eighty songs all the time. <laughs> well, maybe that's just me. But <laughs> but yeah, proper thinking. I'm not sure that qualifies. So, what does deep thinking look like then? What is deep thinking or well, deep thought? For me, deep thinking actually looks very much like writing because I found, and I'm sure that I'm just not highly evolved as, as some people, but I have found that for me, having a pencil in my hand, having a piece of paper, writing down so that I can follow that thought through, bring myself back to it, see new connections, underline stuff, it gives it a tangible form. And, and then 
I can see it and I can work with it and it's useful to me. But it's a kind of um, virtuous circle because yes, the writing helps externalize the thinking so that you can you know, use it. But actually the act of writing catalyzes the thinking so that it can go deeper and make new associations and extend and, and enrich in, in a way that I, I don't manage to do and it's just in my head. And making connections. I think that that's obviously one of the most foundational skills in creativity is being able to see how something relates to something else that it hasn't been related to before. So taking something out of one domain and applying it in another, and that's a really powerful uh, way of creating creativity. I, I can't remember the book I read that was saying that this is the single foundational skill of creativity, is the ability to connect apparently dissimilar objects and, and, and see something interesting in, in when you bring them together. Uh, and you'll know that one of the exercises that we do in right brain is about forced metaphors, uh, which always feels like magic. You see somebody looking at you thinking that you're, you're completely insane when you ask them to see, you know, how, how is their job like this acorn or something? And, and then when you're forced into that, okay, well, I have to find some sort of similarity. Of course you do. And it makes you start from a completely different place, which is another foundational skill of creativity. It's kind of getting out of the rut that you're in. So yeah, that sense of making connections, which your brain does all the time and writing enables you to, to capture that is really, really key. And of course our workplaces are full of metaphors. I mean, you literally can't talk for more than a minute without using a metaphor. You just say, the, the thing is we don't see them anymore. No. We do. I mean, even seeing, that's a metaphor, you know, because you're not literally seeing anything, but it's, it's a visual metaphor. And it's possible to get trapped in your metaphors. There's another one. Because, because you haven't noticed them and you don't realise how they are constraining your thinking. Very powerful. And so that's something to also look for as you write, as you uh, do any reflection yeah. yourself. What are you seeing that's a metaphor? And you can do a little bit of kind of linguistic analysis on your own pre-writing. You know, what's coming up here? If you're using war metaphor in this outpouring of, of what your frustration is at work, what would it be like if you changed that metaphor in use and thought about it more as a collaborative team sport? You can play with metaphors. You can try them on for size and they will change how you see things, but also the solutions that you come up with. It's a fascinating experiment that was run in um, a US university recently where they they wrote about crime. They, they created a sort of piece about crime. And, and the idea was they were, they were using these subjects and they were going to ask them for their solutions about how this could be treated. And they used the metaphor of, of an attacker in one, an almost army besieging the, the town. And in the other, they used a metaphor of a virus, something that was infecting the town. And the solutions that Bosworth came up with were informed by those metaphors, even though when they were talking about it afterwards, they had no idea that that was informing their thinking. It's really interesting that it can shape our response to situations, emotional, but also the way we behave in response to situations. And often we have no idea that that is in fact what's driving us. Fascinating. We've covered reflective practice a bit as well, Alison. What is the value or the benefit to reflective practice and what exactly is it? Yeah, so it's the cold kind of reflective cycle, isn't it? You do, you reflect, you learn, you apply and you go on like that forever in an ideal world. Of course, most of us get stuck in doing. We, we just do, do, and then we do the next thing and we never actually drop into the reflective practice thing. I think what reflective practice can do for you or, or in, in the terms that we're talking about, I guess, that kind of space for a writing practice, which allows you to reflect on the day, it's it metabolizes 
stuff. That's, I think, a really helpful way of thinking about it. You've got so much stuff coming at you all day, every day. So much experience, so much kind of emotion embedded in that that you probably don't even recognize because you haven't got time. So writing helps you ground that and process it and understand and create a narrative around it. And our brains are wired to create stories. So that is in itself a really, really valuable thing. But thinking about it in reflective terms, thinking about what just happened, thinking about how something either went wrong or went right, you know, moving beyond the kind of yay or ah, or that kind of initial reaction to what's interesting about this is allows you to take the learning, to notice how it might be useful elsewhere, maybe even to coach someone in your team about this, because there's so much of what we do as leaders that is just tacit, that we don't even quite understand how we're doing and therefore how the hell are we going to, you know, tell anybody else to do it. So I think there are many, many benefits for you personally, for your organization, for you as a leader, taking some time to reflect, to process this stuff and to draw out the things that need to be learned and taken forward from it. So what people don't realize is that we operate based on patterns. So you will go into a meeting with your manager, you'll be expecting what is going to happen before you've even opened the door or (laughs) turned on Zoom. So you're anticipating a particular scenario to play out. And because you're anticipating that, you will end up behaving in a particular way that reinforces that. So if you see someone you like as you're walking down the street, it'll be big smiles and it'll be high and everything else. If you see someone you really dislike, you might grumble at a hello or might just blank them. And of course, as soon as you do that, that directly impacts on how they respond to you. So I say to people, if you want to change a pattern, it has to start with you. You have to firstly visualize how it could be different. So, you know, at the moment, your brain is expecting you to go into the situation and your imagination is telling you it's going to play out like this because this is how it always does it. So if you want to change that, visualize how you're going to be different. So visualize yourself and, and literally close your eyes and kind of feel it and imagine what you can hear and imagine and what you're saying and how you're saying in your body language, like all the detail to think, how am I making this different? How am I feeling in control? How am I feeling calm? How am I delivering a message? What words am I using? So literally every little detail, what am I doing in my face? So rather than kind of growling this person or just looking tense, I'm actually going to smile and I'm going to ask them a question I would never normally ask. It doesn't matter what it is, but I'm going to change the pattern Because as soon as you do something different, they can't respond in their normal way because the pattern has been disrupted. And when I've read that our brains don't know the difference between what we imagine and reality, that actually that power of imagining and bringing all your senses in is the same to us as if we've done it. Yeah. And I think that's why visualization is so important, because you are literally laying templates in your brain that you pattern match back to. So it doesn't matter that you haven't done something. If you have rehearsed it in your brain well enough, that's really using all your senses. You've immersed yourself. You're not just kind of saying, yeah, I can imagine myself doing that. But you've actually gone through the whole thing in detail. You lay a template in your brain that you'll then pattern match to as if you've done it. Mm. Some people will have a photo of themselves on holiday or somewhere that makes them really happy or something on their desk, because every time they look at that, 
their brain's pattern matching back to how good that felt. And it's all these little cues you can use, whether it's music, sense, it doesn't matter what it is, but that sense of allowing your imagination just to go somewhere else to pattern match to a positive experience rather than I'm focusing on the spreadsheet and I've just got to keep looking at it until it all makes sense, which is just, it's just counterproductive. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've often done that. <laughs> yeah, but to you, it would make sense in the end, and to me, it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, but for me, it's play and imagination as well. Yeah. It would come into, ooh, how can I find this yeah, exactly. to work? Exactly. <laughs> so it, it was showing up in, in a lot of areas of my life, and I think now that I can see it, it's the code for how I live my life. And when I'm off track, I look back and go, where am I off against my heart? Which which one of those core components am I not aligned with? And at the moment we were speaking just before this, it's the energy. And I know this because mentally I'm feeling that I've pushed myself quite heavily over the last few months and I'm feeling the fatigue and the tiredness and I'm going, okay, that's a drop in fuel. That's a drop in energy what do you need to do to refill your tank? Because you're not going to be able to take the action you need. You're not going to be able to make the destination that you want to reach if you run out of fuels. <laughs> so it's it's definitely become a formula for how I really look at every aspect of my life and how I show up for others and how I help clients through the same journey. I, I don't want to bring it down to something simple because I don't think it is simple, but I think there's real beauty in the simplicity that actually it's there in your home. So for everybody, there is a treasure trove, maybe just in your bedroom or in one room that is really you. And if you can connect with that and start to see the threads. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the key there when when you talk about the thread, when you think about numbers, we're always looking for the patterns. We're looking for the patterns to make sense of things. And my biggest clue was if, if the story is about your life and what your teachable gifts are, the clues will be around you in your life and starting with your home, your room, your belongings and starting to pay attention to what is it that you're noticing about the patterns around you that can then start indicating where your story and your truth really sits. Lovely. And I think it's something we can do easily. That's the thing, isn't it? When you're trying to figure out what you love, it's there in front of you. Wow. It always is. Sometimes it just takes that moment to pause and not try too hard, but just let it come. And the heart framework is covered really well in, in your book, Unstoppable Woman. And it's definitely worth a read for anyone who's interested in I think in, well, somebody's story, because that's really what it's about, because you fill it with your own story, but also in maybe simple steps to help you reflect. And I absolutely love the resilience roundabout. I think <laughs> that just made me chuckle, but also it's full of wisdom. Yes. So tell me about writing, Glyn, because you wrote two books, not just one, but you've also written Healing After Heartbreak, which I haven't read. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Healing After Heartbreak was an interesting one because this is what I mean about how life just unfolds and shows you different paths. I started writing poetry 
only in 2017, after I'd moved to Australia, and I was going through the difficult time that I was experiencing with this fucktard of a boss at the time. (laughs) Twice now. (laughs) Yeah, just if you need to mark it as explicit, that's it, twice, two swear words that I won't use anymore. (laughs) But I found myself on a trip in Bali, just sitting on my own, and I, I was sitting in a cafe, and I just thought, I really need to be able to communicate because I do not express anger outside of myself very well. I'm definitely someone who suppresses anger or suppresses frustration and keep it inwards because I don't want to be that energy for others. So realize I needed to have a way where I could find my own truth and my voice. And I, I just started writing poems that allowed me to feel healing. And I started then carried on writing and I've got hundreds now, but I, I'd started writing and then a friend had said, well, what are you going to do with them? I was like, nothing, like put them on Instagram, share them that way. And, and then I got thinking about it and I thought, well, actually those poems helped me heal from my heartbreak, heartbreak of an, a marriage loss, an identity loss, even the, the corporate role that I was doing, there's a sense of loss of, okay, I'd attached my identity to that, but that wasn't true. That wasn't me. So all of this, grief and healing that I was going through and the poems helped me connect to that and they helped me connect in a way where I was talking to myself with real love and compassion and I just thought wow I felt incredibly held by those poems and so I decided to write a book with healing after heartbreak which was essentially a selection of 50 of my poems but 50 healing activities so here's an activity every single day for 50 days that you can do that will help take you from your heartbreak to your heart song. Because I thought, well, if I felt so good reading these, then someone else has the opportunity to feel held and feel supported and loved in a space that could be really difficult for them to navigate at that time. It took a while to get obviously the content because I only write when I'm in the emotion of wanting to write. So I don't write just because I've got a deadline or something. So the book came because it was organically written and then just compiled together to, to take someone on a journey. And then Unstoppable Woman came because, again, I know the power that stories have on me when I read other people's stories and I, I see how open and vulnerable they've been in their books. And I thought, wow, this has made a massive difference to me. What if I, little old me, what if I could make a small... <laughs> impression on someone somewhere and leave a legacy of my own and and not because I'm sitting here going oh yeah I need to be some amazing well-known author or be a New York Times bestseller but because I wanted to say I had the courage to put my own experience and wisdom on a page because it helped me and hopefully it, it would help someone else and yeah the book's pretty raw in terms of my sharing an unstoppable woman I'm a big believer in if you're able to learn something and have the courage to share it then perhaps someone else can benefit from your wisdom heartbreak is a system basically so it's a number of different things and what it includes is an aspect about connecting with your own heart so in a simple term that's just about learning how to focus on that part of your body and a lot of people don't We live in our heads most of the time. We're not really aware of what's going on in our bodies. But there's an element to this, which is about actually connecting with your 
physical heart, that part of your body. We maybe talk about metaphorical heart a bit later. But yeah, about bodily awareness, interoception, that's sometimes called to an awareness of what's going on in, in your body, in our case, particularly the heart. There's then an aspect to this, which is basically breath work. So as you probably know, breath works everywhere at the moment. So it's, breathing seems to have become very fashionable. It's and cool. there's all sorts of wonderful books. Yeah, mindfulness had its time, now breathing's in, you know, and uh, it's all good stuff, obviously. There's some amazing books coming out, but the, part of Heart Math is all about breathing and what we call coherent breathing, which is also called resonant breathing, sometimes called 0.1 hertz breathing as well, which is basically slow, deep, balanced breathing at a rate of around about six breaths a minute. Another aspect of the system is about emotional self-regulation. So it's recognizing that emotions are reactions. We have them all the time and they're unconscious, many of them, but emotions are also choices. So we can intentionally choose to feel gratitude, appreciation, love, care. You know, most of the time, most people don't necessarily do that. We just reacting to what's going on in our environment or inside our head that's good or bad. But part of it's about emotional self-regulation, and then the other bit, which is the bit that draws lots of people to HeartMath, is the technology or the biofeedback. So we have technology which actually enables you to measure the, and validate that you can get into this state that we call coherence. The state's gotten into through the focus, the breathing and the emotional regulation. But that shows up physiologically in terms of heart rhythms. So the biofeedback is measuring and monitoring your heart rhythms, providing you with the feedback. And so that then enables you to a know that you can do this to yourself and then be pra practice develop get better measure yourself monitor yourself and for many people technology as well as is really what helps them to build the habit of this you know we've gotten into a world where <laughs> we're using our phones and computers all of the time and so this is a sort of meeting point between technology and ancient wisdom really the breath work and stuff's been around for millennia why would i want to measure my heart race and the variability of my heart race well, really, to be honest with you, you'd only want to get engaged in the technology bit of the system. And, that, and just to clarify, the system will still work. The techniques will work with or without technology. It's the techniques that are the most important thing. But why you might be interested in the technology is if you're the type of person that likes to, A, prove that something's real. Many people are interested in meditation and mindfulness and they give it a go. But many people don't actually know what they should be experiencing or they don't actually necessarily feel or experience anything or they tell themselves oh this thing's supposed to be about not thinking about anything or astrally projecting or whatever people tell themselves they're supposed to experience <laughs> then they get frustrated that they can't name it or feel it or experience it so the benefit of the biofeedback is to begin with Susan it doesn't matter whether you feel it or not you're going to get some feedback from the technology which will validate whether you are or are not in the state and will actually give you a measure of the extent to which you are in it so then over time, if you use the technology, the biofeedback is helping you to, to then recognize, oh, so this thing's telling me that I am not coherent at the moment. What do I notice? Oh, actually, there's a bit of tension. All my thoughts are racing. Or I've just worried about what I'm going to have for dinner or whatever. Oh, it's now going green and it's telling me I am coherent. What's different? Oh, well, I've relaxed my body. I realize that I'm managing to focus on something that I feel appreciation of gratitude for so to clarify the technology doesn't do anything to you it's not like forms of technology that might stimulate you in some way or zap your vagus nerve or whatever i don't know but it's it's just giving you data on what you're doing to yourself you talked about emotions yeah as well. and i guess 
people are maybe think that well heart makes me soft and emotional and that's mm. not how I'm supposed to show up in the world I'm supposed to be tough and mm. and always logical yeah so for the skeptics <laughs> perhaps or those of us that maybe don't believe in bringing our emotional self to the workplace how do you deal with that well yeah, I and mean, I think that's quite common, you know, probably culturally in Britain, but also, you know, I'm a man, so I can say it, you know, for, for men as well. We think that we should be in control of our emotions or suppress our emotions or that emotions can get us in trouble and that it's logical, rational brain that we should live our lives by. That's nonsense. We're human beings, you know, we're human beings. And even if we might convince ourselves that we don't have those emotion things and they don't get us into trouble. Suppression of emotions is incredibly unhealthy. And all the science shows that. And my pushback on that is that that way of thinking is very old fashioned. It leads to poor physical and mental health. We know there's a correlation between emotional suppression and disease, particularly heart disease. And so if you're doing it, you need to stop. But I'd also say that being human is about emotions. We are feeling creatures. Quality of life does not depend upon the size of your house and how wonderful your car is. I'm not saying that those things can't make you happy, but that's the key word. It's the happiness that's the quality of life. And happiness in life does not just come from possessions and extrinsic things or measures. Happiness comes from a wide variety of different sources. And actually, happiness is not the one single thing that we should pursue because part of being human is the whole world of emotion and feeling and and all of them are valid so the emotion part of heart math is about recognizing that emotions are what make us human emotions are where we get quality of life from and recognizing that whilst we don't want to suppress emotions we do have some choice around them we have some, some control and so therefore what we can do if we become aware of our emotions is regulate some of the unpleasant ones that just really don't help us, don't serve us well. And actually, if we experience too many of them, make us ill. And on the flip side of that, to recognize that we have got opportunities to choose to feel pleasant, positive emotions more frequently. And if we do that, then there are the physical, mental health benefits. But actually, you know, quality of life is just based upon how you're feeling. And to really oversimplify things, there's a ratio of feeling good and feeling bad. And, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty good life has some balance between feeling good and feeling bad and a really good life might have a bit more feeling good than feeling bad and so it's just about having control over that uh, and most people don't no, emotions are reactions for most people and and you're not talking about thinking positive no I think that just telling yourself things thoughts is is not what this is about it must include a felt experience I can keep telling myself that I'm doing okay when I'm not. And people around me could clearly see that I'm not doing okay. Mental toughness, which is one of the lenses that resilience is viewed through. There's lots of kind of mental toughness training programs. I'm not saying mental toughness isn't a useful skill to have, but mental toughness in and of itself actually could be very damaging. You could be so mentally tough that actually you could push your body so hard. If you're if you're an athlete, you know, your mental toughness can cause you to override all of the information that your body's given you about how much it hurts and how tired it is. And then you can do that to the extent where you could damage yourself. You can burn yourself out. Mental toughness is what can put you in a place where for five or 10 years of your career, you're working way too hard. You're, again, you're overriding the body saying, 
I need a bit more sleep or I'm not really enjoying myself anymore. It's just like, no, keep pushing through. And that's, and that's damaging. So it isn't about just thinking positively. It's about actually connecting with the emotion and the feeling. So really being happy as opposed to just telling yourself, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy. <laughs> so how can I be happy how can I feel that how can I rather than tell myself oh today I'm really happy yeah I'm smiling you know what what's the difference how can I do that how can I create that for myself well the first step is through balancing the body because if you're experiencing stress and anxiety even if you're not conscious of it it's in the system so the system's out of balance there's chaos there and to varying degrees the stress centers are activated as well so the first part is basically the the heart focus and the breathing So that needs to be the foundation, bring balance back into the body. That, if you like, takes you to a more neutral, balanced place. But that's the foundation then for self-regulation. It's very hard to self-regulate when you're stressed and anxious. What I've come to know, Susan, is that anything that's manifesting itself physically, I would say 98% of the time, maybe even more, is... It's actually something that's manifesting from an emotional issue. And if we don't deal with the emotional stuff, that will manifest as a physical illness in some way and and mentally also. Yeah, so it's this mental, emotional. That's a huge number, 98% of the time. Obviously, if we break something, that's different. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've got a pain in my shoulder, for example. Yeah, it's coming from yeah. something. Yeah, and 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 I think also that we're working with energies here. Even scientists, you know, because some people say, "Oh, yoga, it's all a bit woohoo." But at the end of the day, science shows if you're into the science, and it's obviously very helpful, but it can be very limiting. Then everything is energy, and so in this human form that we have to take care of, there's energies. And, and if those energies aren't flowing freely and they get blocked and what happens, and this took me on to something called TRE as well. So that I went on from yoga therapy to training as a mindfulness teacher and then doing TRE, which is trauma release exercise. So I've shifted into what I call somatic healing or somatic therapy or, or a, just a different way of actually looking at how we are as human beings and how does illness manifest because there are a lot of things that, that doctors, the medical profession can't explain that actually, though, they will come back to stress. And it's stress. And what does stress do? It creates contraction in the body. And it's such a catch all. I mean, stress isn't actually anything. If you say you're stressed, what do you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you, and, and, and that stress can be anything from an email to full-on trauma so there's a whole spectrum and and as a human being we all experience stress trauma whatever you want to call it suffering that is just part of being human and and I don't believe we're equipped very well at all to deal with difficulties in life we distract ourselves I can put my hand up keeping myself busy so we can keep ourselves very busy at work we just put everything into that until at some point our body will say, I can't do this anymore. Hence burnout. 
exhaustion. And it's the body's way of saying, you have to stop now. You have to stop and you have to listen and you have to take care of yourself and you have to look at what the real issues are here. Because until you address those, the, the suffering or the difficulties, the trauma that you've had in your life and possibly and more often going to childhood. So the first seven years of our lives are very, very informative. And our parents weren't given the skills to, to deal with the issues of life. So a lot of people feel fear, the lack of self-esteem, a feeling of unloved. You know, they're often the root causes of things that then manifest later in life. And they abound in workplaces. Because like you said, we're all immerse ourselves in the busyness of work. Yeah. And work will fill as much time as we want to give it. I mean, there's no question about that because it never ends. Yeah. Yet there's people in workplaces that are suffering and struggling and immersing themselves in work as a way they think it's the only way. Yeah, yes. Yeah, because to be honest, there doesn't appear to be many other ways. Now, what is happening, what is changing is people are recognising mental health. And, and we know now, we see that more in, in the workplace and mindfulness has become a, a buzzword. And unfortunately, people aren't are still not able to get the care they need. Our medical profession, still the resources heavily go into the physical ailments so so we're putting the money into dealing with the the symptoms and we're still not putting enough money and resources and time and effort into what is causing people to have ibs ms me breakdowns back pain back pain back pain yeah yeah and any kind of physical pain what happens is emotions and this stuff that we've been suppressing maybe from childhood or conversation we had two weeks ago the things we've been suppressing bubble up and start to come up and out because because they need to whilst they're held in the system and kind of trapped we're contracted and the contraction means energies aren't flowing things aren't functioning the body can't function in, in a healthy way and therefore it gets disease yeah and it gets ill so, so then the key thing in life, how to deal with difficult emotions. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's so much in there. And I suppose I think, you know, we have everything we need in ourselves to help ourselves almost, you know, there's that feeling that that's what you're saying. We've, we've caused it somehow <laughs> to ourselves as well. And, and then we carry it around unknown to ourselves and yeah. unless we become aware, how do we cope? And then how do we become aware? And there's this cycle that is like frightening. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it can feel frightening and it can feel overwhelming, Susan. And, and we don't feel safe and it's very stressful. What you said there, you hit the nail on the head because we have to be aware. Without awareness, we, we go through this life on autopilot, getting caught up in the dramas, and, and we can't see that awareness of how we operate as a human being, an awareness of our, of our mind and the thoughts, and just awareness of what happens in, in the body. 
and awareness of all that's around us. But if we're like just we're distracted, we're sat behind a computer, we're on a device, we're watching the telly, we're numbing out with alcohol, drugs, what oh yeah. So, but just taking a step back there, awareness. The more people you speak to, or the more possibilities you look at, it opens up your imagination to be able to see, well, maybe it's not just so linear, maybe it's not just so black and white, maybe there is a bit of grey, we could maybe there's something else that potentially could happen. And as soon as you have that like little chink of light, our amygdala could potentially then be looking for that in that situation rather than just focusing on the problem. So I mean it's it's curiosity. Mm. it's open-mindedness growth learning it's it's all of that great stuff yeah that I guess it's it's making your body your friend to relax yourself enough to let in like that chink of light that you say and absolutely being receptive yeah to good stuff and I think once you know we just said about making your body your friend I think when people understand how their brain works and why it works as it does, it kind of normalizes what's happening and that empowers people. So I always talk to people about what's going on in the brain because otherwise there's a bit of mystery and it's almost like I haven't got control over this or this is always going to happen. I can't do anything about it. But as soon as people understand why, and that your amygdala creating this panicky response is actually just trying to do it to protect you. It's not an evil thing you want to squash out of your life. It's like actually you just need to reassure it that you're okay. I think as soon as we understand what's going on, it gives us a way in to do things differently and to manage it better rather than your amygdala being the driving seat. You can detect and, and realise that Bob is waking up. He's been chilling out and actually he's now... A bit more alert he doesn't need to be alert but he's on the lookout he's thinking about x y or z you know his imagination is focusing on all, all these things that aren't helpful for me so actually I can just say you know what I've got this covered it's it's fine but you need to be you need to be happy to take control of that rather than oh it's Bob's chatting again I've got to just tune into him it's a very mm-hmm. conscious choice that people have to make yeah that's and it's it's developing that self-awareness it's recognizing that actually the voice is Bob exactly exactly and I think that's the bit that people often miss is those is those early warning signs I always picture um like a scale from a kind of the chill that end where you are in complete control your brain's working really really well and Bob is asleep or he's sitting back in his chair and a biscuit and a cup of tea or whatever and and as soon as he starts to kind of get cotton on to something that could be a threat it could be you just heard someone's name who you had conflict with before or something's happened there's that little pattern match and Bob is now alert and he's looking around and as soon as he becomes alert you will have a physical response so there will be something going on in your body some people's tension around their shoulders or it might be their heart rate increases whatever your sign is it's about noticing that because that at that point your prefrontal cortex is still working really really well and that's the point you can reassure Bob well either you can say thanks Bob actually yeah this is a pretty dangerous situation or actually this is fine 
and you can chill out again. I'm, I've got this. I'm in control. But if you miss those early warning signs and he gets the point of standing up, jumping up and down and being very, very dominant. By that point, it's really shut down your ability to use your imagination in a positive way, because you're at that point, you are just glass half empty, black and white thinking spotlight on the problem. So when we use our imagination well, the possibilities are endless. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to Susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.